Welcome to Parma Christian Fellowship Church's weekly sermon podcast. All of our sermons are available for listening and download at pcf.church. May God's word enrich you today. We've been working our way through 1 Corinthians. I was going to try and tie it all up this weekend, but I missed last weekend, so I'm going to do this sermon this week, which would have been last week. And then next week, which is October 1 and 2, I'll do the last part, 1 Corinthians 16, which is quite an interesting chapter, by the way. And uh, we will have communion, and that will be a wonderful experience, so be sure to come next week as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to start with verses 12 through 26. Eventually, we're going to kind of tie in the rest of the chapter. This is one of the most important chapters in the entire New Testament, certainly the Bible. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hoped in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. As in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, and then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I have one point. This is a great sermon for when I've been really sick. I'm running about 50%, so you can only listen with one ear, and you'll get pretty much everything I have to say. An element is the basic building block of creation. Henry Cavendish identified the element of hydrogen in 1766. He was working with iron and some chemicals and some previous knowledge that was gained by other researchers. They found that a gas was emitted that normally in our environment is combined two hydrogens, and one oxygen to make water, a molecule of water. 
they were finding ways in which they could separate that, and they discovered not only did they have uh, 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 O2 gas, but one hydrogen, and they could collect the hydrogen. It was lighter than the oxygen. Eventually, they discovered that the building block of a hydrogen atom is actually the most simple of all elements. It's an elementary element. One proton in its center and one electron circulating around, no neutrons. There is a, a deuteron hydrogen atom that's unstable and a tri tritium that's even more unstable that becomes uh, part of nuclear power. But hydrogen is the elementary element, the base, the absolute building block. Every other element in the universe is built on protons combined with neutrons and an equal number of electrons that are circulating around it. That bond is virtually unbreakable except by nuclear explosion. The estimate is somewhere between 80 and 95%, they're not sure, of the entire universe, the ent all the suns, all the stars, everything, are hydrogen atoms. That when God created the heavens and the earth, this sounds really simple, it's amazing. When he created the heavens and the earth, he only had to make two things, a proton and an electron. That was it. One negative, one positive. How hard is that? I mean, like anybody can do that, right? And then it's combinations of those basic, elemental, foundational, unchanging pieces of matter that makes everything in the universe we see. That's just marvelous. That's mind-blowing to me. That all the variety, all of the beauty, all of the colors, and everything about gravity, and on and on and on, is really based on the simplistic design of one proton and one electron, hydrogen. In Christianity, we have taken what is utterly the most simple fact, we, the larger church, and obliterated the simple message by how we have crafted this thing we call the church. On September 23rd, 2001, there was a prayer meeting in Yankee Stadium for New York City, four days or uh, 14 days, 13 days after the 9-11. The towers were still burning, firemen were still fighting, and a number of clergy gathered together in Yankee Stadium to pray. There was a Sikh leader, there was a Jewish leader, different kinds of Jewish leaders, Catholic leaders, a number of Protestant leaders, and one of the Protestant pastors that was invited to come and pray at this incredible event in New York City was David Benke, a Lutheran church, Missouri Synod pastor. He joined with other pastors to pray. He was charged with syncretism and unionism by his denomination. 
Syncretism is saying that um, what Christians believe and what Sikhs believe and Jews believe and Hindus believe and Buddhists believe are basically the same. They're all kind of on the same platform. That's syncretism. And unionism is that every other version of the Christian faith that has variation from their doctrine has been dismissed and unionism is against their rules. They actually have a rule. Now, the end of the story is he was reinstated. He was, he was forced out of the ministry when he was reinstated in 2003. David Benke was his name. What's fascinating about that is the whole concept misses the one essential element. It's not a debate. It's not an argument. It's not philosophy. It's not attitude. It's not a turn of your mind. It's not wishful thinking. It's not hope. It is simply a fact. God raised Jesus from the dead. Period. That is the element of Christianity. That is what holds everything together. All the rest of it is all built on that. Paul says in this, he's writing to a church so fractured, so divided, they won't talk to each other, they won't work with each other, they won't contribute their spiritual gifts to each other, they don't trust each other, they talk behind each other's back. When they come for communion, people who are the haves won't share with those who are the have-nots. Paul has been writing now for 14 chapters about all the aspects of Christianity. This is one of the puzzling things I have about how Paul did this. But he waits till chapter 15 to get to the one thing that unites those who are followers of Jesus in the community of Jesus Christ, the resurrection. The resurrection is the element of Christianity. That is my only point today. The struggle that we have is that we want to add on top all kinds of other matters, factors, issues, ways in which we identify, that kind of thing. As Paul is explaining this, there really is no spiritualized language that comes out of heaven to be able to convince anybody that this is true. Paul just, he uses logic. And in Greek, there's two ways of saying if. One if is maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Possibly yes, possibly no. The other one is since this is true. And in Greek logic, Paul uses that word consistently in the section that I read. If, since it is preached, Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is none? If or since, let's logically say, if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised. And since Christ is not raised, you're not going to be raised either. And since the resurrection doesn't happen, your faith has been placed in a story a joke, a, a fable, a myth, just like all the rest of the world believes. So where does that leave you? 
stuck in the mud. You have nothing. But then he gets to the proclamation. However, Christ has been raised from the dead. He doesn't get into the, did he walk on water? Did he actually feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish? Was he born of a virgin? Did he, was he a carpenter? Did he open blind eyes? Did he speak? Did he spit in the mud? He did, they don't get into that. Did he quote, a, did he originally come up with a Sermon on the Mount, or did he borrow it from a whole bunch of different teachers and put it all together in a masterful way? They, he doesn't get into that. When he walked on the sand, did he not really leave footprints, or did he really leave footprints? Did he have holes in his hands? None of those are not the issues on which Christianity is built. Paul says there's one point, one, only one. Christ has been raised from the dead. Death has mastery over the human condition. You get through all the days of your life, and a day comes at which you walk that part of your journey alone. And that is the last part of which you go into eternity. Do you go to nothing? Do you disappear? Do you recycle? What happens? Christ is risen from the dead. He's the first fruits. And so Paul then establishes that concept. And he's trying to explain this to people who don't have 2,000 years of preaching and teaching and Easter services and lilies and all the stuff that we've added, bunnies and eggs and all. They don't have all that. So Paul continues the story in, in verses 35 through 58. So this is very conversational, at least the way I read it in my mind. Is very He's writing to his friends and people he's led to Christ, and he's trying to sit down next to them with a cup of tea or, or a snack and say, let's talk about this, folks. You're divided. You hate each other. You won't have anything to do with each other. Let's come back to the absolute starting point. The only thing that unites all of us is the resurrection of Christ. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish, and the word there is really how moronic. You idiot. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Duh. They all knew this. They were farmers. They all knew how plants work. They knew that if they left some seeds out and they got moist, a little green would pop out of the bottom. They could pull it out of the ground. They could see it growing. But they saw, it. They saw that all the time. And it doesn't look like the seed that started. If it was a piece of corn or a piece of wheat, the little green thing coming out looks nothing like that at all. Absolutely, totally different. And then when the plant begins to grow and bears a head of fruit, that's nothing like what the seed was to begin with. Now, when you're an experienced farmer, you can hold a handful of seeds and say these are wheat or rye or whatever they happen to be. You know the seeds, but not because they look like pumpkins or squash or corn. They don't look like that. They have to die first, and then life comes after that. What you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you don't plant the body that's going to be just a seed, maybe wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have a different. Birds another. Fish another. 
There's heavenly bodies, and there's earthly bodies, and the splendor of a heavenly body is one kind, and the splendor of earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, and the moon another, and stars another, and stars differ from stars in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, again, he's using logic, since, since there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, referring to Jesus, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual didn't come first. The natural came first, and after that came the spiritual. The first man was from the dust of the earth. The second man is from heaven. So was the earthly man, so are those of the earth. And this, as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, will bear the image of the heavenly man. So he's presenting this logical argument, but there's still only one issue, only one point. The basis of our faith is God has raised Jesus from the dead. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God, nor will the perishable inherit the, or the, perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that was written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. One point. Christ is risen from the dead. If you try to present Christianity on any other basis, you know, Christians are really good people. There's going to be a lot of evidence it's not, that's not true. If you try to say, you know, we have a really solid doctrine we believe in, and I think we're really right, instantaneously somebody's going to be able to find a hole in that argument. If somebody believes something else, very sincerely, doesn't believe what you believe. If you say our church is really beautiful and we have wonderful services that are just stunning, somebody will find a chink in the armor. They're going to find something that goes wrong. They're going to find some way in which it isn't absolutely flawless. Because you can't argue Christianity from that basis. None of those things really define what it means to be a Christian. So what is it that actually builds this thing we call the church, the community of Jesus Christ. Paul says there is nothing else that matters. You can hold those doctrinal points of view. You can have a certain style. You can be proud of your hierarchy or your history. Those are all fine. But none of them are the hydrogen of Christianity. 
the only thing that separates Christianity from every other faith and every atheism of the entire world in all of the history of the world is not our philosophy, it's not our teachings, it's not our character, it's not our testimony, it's not our style, it's not what we've been able to accomplish in good acts around the world. Jesus died a real human death. And God, he didn't get himself up. God intervened in the human journey and raised him from the dead as the first fruits of, of all creation. That is Christianity. Now, everything else can add on, and that's okay. Paul has a lot of doctrine in 1 Corinthians and a lot of advice and a lot of counsel and a lot of correction. But he waits until the end of the book and he says, folks, one issue is essential. It is elemental. Christ is risen from the dead. So then, as he gets to the end of this, why are you giving up? He says to them, stand firm. Everything you're doing in the Lord has value. Why do you argue? Why are you so split? Why do you find some reason to pick at somebody else? I have a lot of friends online, about 1,800 people, quite a number of them, several hundred are pastors. And it is really interesting to me how often I see blatant, cruel, incisive criticism of somebody else's point of view because they disagree with me or them. It's amazing to me that where does that spirit of division, of caustic uh, splitting, where does that come from? It comes from getting away from the one thing that unites us, the resurrection of Christ. And the issue that pertains is that everything else falls into place beneath that. Not every single week do I know how close to death I am. I mean, if I'm walking down the sidewalk, I don't know that a car just went down that same sidewalk 20 minutes earlier. If I had been there at that moment, I'd been hit by a car. But I wasn't there, and the car wasn't there when I was there, so how do I know how close I was to dying? But in this sepsis thing, when I just, I could not hardly lift my head off the pillow the, the reality is you come to the realization this theoretically could be the last part of my journey. And I'm okay with that. Why am I okay with that? Because I'm so philosophical? No. Because I've had such a good life that's been so easy? Absolutely not. Because I've been able to be productive and have some things that are going to continue after I, after I die? No. I'm comfortable with it because Christ is risen from the dead. Absolutely, that is the foundation of who I am and what I believe. And so what Paul is trying to do is to bring to the focus of the Corinthians and then to the rest of us 2,000 years later, there really is only one thing that is true forever. Christ is risen from the dead, and that is Christianity. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 
you really did an amazing job when you created everything. But it had a flaw in it. Self-will, the ability to choose against you, to break the relationship. That brought death. And it seems like death is the winner. But it's not. You even had a plan for that, to break the shackles of death, to take away our fear, to answer the question, what really matters? What do I, what do I stake that I will not move from? Only one thing. Jesus is risen from the dead, and you did that. Therefore, everything else in the entire universe comes to you. We praise you. We are overwhelmed with joy and awe. Glory to you. Because of who you are and what you do. In Jesus' name we pray.